tuned into Geek Elite Radio. Good luck. Hello, listeners. This is Christopher out at Geek Elite Radio, part of the Imagine If podcast. Today we're out here at the Mission Valley Library Comic Con. Mission Viejo. Mission Viejo, thank you. A little too much sun for me. Um, but it's been a great day. We've got a lot of people out here um, coming out to see all kinds of walks of life. A lot of costume folks and, and folks like that. So I'm here with Bob Breachoff and Marv Wolfman. Um, great comic book fans and I'm hopeful that you'll recognize the names. Bob, you are the world's Guinness Book of World Records most largest comic book collection. Yeah, so you, you have me beat, so how does that how does that feel to hold that title? Uh, it's it's kind of an accomplishment. You know, I, I look at it as I have the largest comic book collection of somebody who's bothered to jump through all the hoops that Guinness puts uh, in place to verify the collection. You know, there might be other people, and certainly there are um, comic dealers and people like that um, that have huge comic book collections as well. So I, I think that I'm in and amongst the top, but, you know, I've been recognized by Guinness, so that's always fun. That is. That is definitely uh, a feat. It's awesome. I know I, I like to look back at my man cave and see everything up on the shelf and in the boxes and take pride in those moments. And uh, Marv, you are a creator of a lot of characters, a lot of great stuff from both Marvel, DC, independent works. Um, this one was kind of a neat touchstone for me. I remember um, as a kid, the, the Disney Adventures magazine. Right. I love that. I was the editor, founding editor uh, for it. Yeah, that was neat. I remember when that first one came in the mail with Rick Moranis on the cover. I thought that was such a neat book. Yeah. You know? yeah. So uh, it was it was a pleasure to work on there. And the only reason I stopped, I did it for four and a half years, is they moved to New York, and I wasn't going to move to New York. Also, at the time, were you here on the West yeah, Coast, I was California? Here. Oh wow! And I had moved from New York, so I wasn't about to move back. <laughs> yeah, that makes things harder. <laughs> well, let's see. All right, so gentlemen, uh, I'd love to talk some comics. I mean, you guys are titans in this stuff, so this would be fantastic. So I always like to to start off the, the the interview segment with Secret Origins. So, how did you get into comics? What's the the first comic you remember picking up off the newsstand or reading about? Well, for me, um, I was watching a TV show called Howdy Doody, which. Uh, uh, was a very popular kid show. And normally at the end of it, I would get up to change the channel. We didn't have remote controls back then. You had to physically get up. That's what kids and were for, right? <laughs> that's what kids were for, but I was a kid. so, And I didn't get up. And the show that was on, to change it to another channel, where there was another show that I generally watched. And what happened was, the very next show was The Adventures of Superman, which I had never heard of. And it opens with him flying, and that made me want to see the whole episode. And at the end, it said Superman's based on the copyrighted character appearing in Superman and Action Comics Monthly. And I immediately ran to the corner where there was a newsstand and bought my first comic. Wow. Yeah, the, the George Reeves show, that was a fantastic uh, show to watch. Yes, it was. And, uh, Bob, how about yourself? How did you find yourself in the comic books? Um... I was eight. I had read my I had read comics my older brothers had bought over the years. You know, I had maybe read like Richie Rich or Uncle Scrooge, Batman. You know, different kind of comics. But when I was eight, I actually my brother for my birthday gave me um, a kind of a coupon to buy comics because he kind of wanted to get me into comics because he was reading comics. And I went to the local convenience store and. The first one that I picked out for myself was Spider-Man, and it was Amazing Spider-Man 88. And I brought that home. He was fighting Dr. Octopus, and uh, I read that. It kind of ended on a little bit of a cliffhanger, you know, what will happen next. And I came back the next month, and I came back the next month after that, and the next month after that. And it's ever since that month, I have bought comic books every month. I never stopped. And I expanded out over time. You know, first I got into more Marvel stuff. You know, Marvel would have crossovers. You know, Spider-Man would appear in Captain America. So I pick up that Captain America issue. Spider-Man would appear in Daredevil. So I picked up Daredevil and I started reading that. I started reading Avengers, Fantastic Four, everything. And then eventually I started reading DC Comics. And then in the 80s I started reading indie books. And, you know, it just ultimately just ballooned until I... And I never threw them away. I never sold them. And I just keep reading them to this day. And that's what I 
think is somewhat unique about me is that I didn't stop at some point. So I still buy over 100 comic books every month. And I read over a hundred different comic books every month, which about a third of them are superheroes, and the other two thirds are, you know, from Image and Dark Horse and IDW and on and on through the previous catalog, a bunch of different publishers. But I just love the stories and the characters. Yeah, that was a neat thing as a kid growing up was you'd always cheat and buy the Avengers and Justice League because you got the most superheroes, you know, out of out of your comic book page. Uh, well, see, Marv, I wanted to ask you. I was looking at your career. You started off publishing a fanzine correct yes several could you, could you tell me about those well those uh you know um they were all printed on something called ditto which was a master that uh you could actually have different colors on and um what it a lot what it printed was about 125 copies and you would go through it every single uh every single master and do the entire book that way um it, it's the way most of us did our stuff. We couldn't afford uh, uh, real printing, and I had a little uh, little uh, ditto machine and published a whole bunch. I published a superhero fanzine called Super Adventures. I published um, a horror fanzine uh, called Stories of Suspense, a humor fanzine called The Foob, and an opinion sort of gossipy type of thing uh, called What the... And Watha, uh, because I lived in New York, I was able to go up to the store, uh, go up to the companies, and get news, and that's how I would, that's what I would publish. Oh, so you could actually walk up to the offices and you would ask them, hey, any yeah. insider scoops or things? And well, they had tours, and so I can go on the tour and uh, ask the questions while I was on the tour. Oh wow, that's awesome! Yeah. So then, when you would when you would publish these fanzines, how did you get your distribution out? How did that work for you? Well, f- fandom had already been long established in both first in science fiction and then in comics. So there were fanzines, and there was one called the Rocket Blast that was purely uh, a sales fanzine. Every every it was all about buying and selling comics, and I took an ad out in those. Uh-huh. They weren't much. Maybe they were a dollar. You know, back then. Uh, so that's how I got the news out. But I couldn't sell too many because I couldn't print that many. Right. <laughs> so well, it must feel good. Every issue was a sellout, right? <laughs> uh, pretty much, yeah. Especially one of the horror fanzines because it was the very first story by Stephen King. Yes, I did see that. That. So, uh, if you don't mind my asking, how how old was he when you when you approached him? I didn't approach him. Or, um, oh. But he was about 14 or 15, I guess. Wow. Uh, 16 at most. We were approximately the same age. A friend of mine who knew him uh, said uh, he, has a st- he did a story for some fanzine, but they serialized it over a number of issues. And it wasn't that long a story, but it, it was all serialized, so it had never been published as one. And he asked if I'd be interested in publishing it, and I read the story, and I thought the story was uh, was pretty good. And uh, I said, sure. You know, uh, obviously, you don't know a 14- or 15-year-old is going to become the most successful writer in history, but uh, that was that's a nice side benefit. Now, um, Bob, I was going to ask you, I know you said you were doing podcasting as well, and you also currently have the uh, website, correct? Right. If you could tell me more about that. Um, So I've long been fascinated by spreading the word about comics, you know, so that's that's when I did the podcast, kind of like what you're doing now, you know, I did a podcast for five or six years called Comic Book Page, and we would review uh, comics every week. And we also would have separate episodes where we talk about the previews catalog once a month. We, I would do interviews with creators, you know, um, every probably at least once a month. I would find someone. Usually they were indie creators too, because Marvel and DC, they had a lot of hoops that I would have to jump through. You know, you can only ask these certain questions and get to clear everything with their publicity department and stuff. The indie guys who were owned their stuff, they could pretty much say whatever they wanted to say. So <laughs> I would I would gravitate toward those guys. But I really liked that um, kind of telling people about stuff, you know. And then um, I moved from that to the website I have now called ComicSpectrum.com, where it's just you know it's a fan it's a fan site. I don't 
I don't do advertising. It's just something that I put out because I like spreading the word about comics. And I've got a Facebook page, same name, Comic Spectrum. And we talk about comics, you know, we post, you know, about comics we're buying and um, we put reviews up of comics. I have some resources on the site where I talk about, um, you know, buying new comics, buying back issue comics, buying original art, you know, how to store your comics, you know, how to do all these different kind of things. And I'm always happy to talk with fans who want kind of tips on, you know, how do you preserve, you know, 100,000 and some odd comics and, you know, how do you do this or that? Because, you know, we share the information with each other. It's kind of like uh, what Marv did back with his fanzines, except now we can get to a few more people sometimes you know on the internet just because of the information flows so easily nice well let's see i wanted to ask this because i know name dropping a moment ago gil kane how was it like to work with gil kane well when i grew up gil was my favorite artist um and i i just loved his artwork uh gil was very strange sometimes in person uh he, he and I did a lot of different series together. Uh, John Carter, Superman, and a whole bunch of others too. And I'd say whenever we worked together, we we increased the sales of the book beautifully. We didn't always get along, but uh, you know you don't have to. We were we were doing we were working together, and we worked together very well. So um, that's the only thing that you that you can hope for is that. That you do work together well. Mm-hmm. Now, and one thing I was curious about, I, um, I'm a big Green Lantern Hal Jordan fan, and I've always heard the story that I guess when Gil designed Hal Jordan, that he designed it off of his neighbor Paul Newman. Is that is that true, or is that kind of one of those little tales that grew as time went on? I don't know. Um, I could believe it. Uh, I could certainly believe it because back then they tended to use different celebrities as, as guides, but I never talked to, I never asked uh, Gil that, so uh, I, I don't want to attribute <laughs> information and make it factual when I have no idea. Gotcha. Uh, it's always one of those uh, urban legends you said I was always curious about. Somebody may know, I just don't. Oh, nice. Well, let's see. Okay, so then one thing I'd love to ask is, um, what's your favorite comic? So being in the industry, you know, we're all being fans here. What's the one comic you could never put down like no matter what who's a character you followed or you know some title that always sticks with you my my favorite superhero has always been superman i don't necessarily have to like the individual stories but i uh totally love the book love the character and at marvel it would have been either spider-man or fantastic four because i love those stories now, if you don't mind piggybacking off of that, um, you got to take part of Action Comics 1000 coming up here. Yes. Uh, the, the Kurt Swan story, is there any insider scoops you'd love to give? Well, uh, as, as I've explained, um, DC found four pages of Kurt Swan's art that had never been published. It didn't have a beginning, middle, or end. It was just four isolated pages. Turns out that it, there was a... Um, um, a fill-in issue done, and Kurt drew it, uh, but it was never published as itself, and that's what those... And there was some sort of special book, and I only found this out in the last few days, a special book that used uh, several other pages from that story of Kurt's, and then I didn't know any of that. All I was given was four pages of artwork, and I was asked, could I make a story out of it? And I love doing that sort of puzzle puzzle work, and that's what I did. I turned it into a story. Um, Superman's not in it, and yet I had to make him the main character. That was my feeling. So, uh, and there were no villains, but I create. I had a villain in it. So it's all done in the writing, and I'm very pleased with my job. Nice. So, and out of curiosity with your collection, out of the 1,000 issues of Super of Action Comics, how many do you have? Um, I start Action probably, it's before issue 200, um, you know, so I probably, I'd say probably about 850 of them or so. I mean, I start probably around 150, 160, something like that. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow, that's, that's awesome. So, I mean... 
I, I'm excited to be around to get to see the Action Comics 1000. I think that's an anonymous, uh, just a, a feat, an amazing feat. Um, well, one, one quick, quick thing I wanted to ask you about. One of my uh, one of our followers asked, um, with your comic book writing, uh, would you ever like to return to Vigilante? Any any? Uh... Well, I did a I did a, vi- a new Vigilante series uh, a couple of years ago. I created a new Vigilante, the brother of Adrian Chase, and um, there were characters like that if I created them I, I would love to do and these days I'm doing uh, Raven and Cyborg so I enjoy doing those things um, and so yeah to say would I enjoy another uh, series with Vigilante of course I you know you hope that you create something that never goes out of business so uh, I would love to do more oh there you go Eric fan let me throw in here that anyone who's a fan of the Raven character that Marv created I haven't read the cyborg that you've done yet but the issues that have come out of the Raven miniseries so far have been awesome I've loved them thank you and anyone who is a fan of those characters um, should definitely go to their shop and catch up on the new Raven miniseries that's currently coming out by Marv. Thank you so much, Marv. Yeah, I've been hearing a lot of great chatter. Well, gentlemen, I appreciate this. It's It's been a fun day in the sun. Uh, once again, we're out here at uh, Mission Viejo. Their, their library is having a Comic-Con. I believe this is their first, first, first one. one. Yeah. So this is very exciting. Great talent out here. A lot of happy people. Just good times. So if you're in the area, come on by. Say hello. Meet Mart. Meet Bob. Um, uh, listeners, thank you. And as always, geek out. And now as a bonus, here is a section of Marv Wolfman's spotlight panel at Mission Viejo Library Comic Con. When I'm going to do Crisis and I'm figuring out the storyline, it suddenly strikes that this librarian character is a great pivot point for it. And I had introduced him into the DC Universe in my books a month or two earlier and then decided to incorporate him in. And so he became the monitor, the satellite was still there, he was spying on people, and the whole story changed. But when you're a kid and you come up with these ideas that you absolutely love, and then when you're later in the field in one way or another, you're mining the stuff that you loved as a kid. You're you're coming up with ideas based on the stuff that you generated. I didn't follow through on all the secondary characters but the main storyline and the main character were really strong for me. But that's moving ahead uh, quite a bit. So anyway, I'm doing, at this point, I'm doing fanzines. Uh, fanzines were these either mimeographed or ditto press or a very limited thing that fans did and sold. I think I sold them for a quarter, and that included postage back then. And they were original stories. Uh, I published one called uh, Super Adventures, which was a superhero fanzine. And I wrote most of the stories and had several people, including myself, draw them. Uh, I did one called uh, Stories of Suspense, which was a horror fanzine, and uh, I wrote stories there and got a lot of people to do them, and Stories of Suspense would be forgotten for the most part, except that I published Stephen King's very first story uh, in it. He was like 14 or 15 at the time, and it was Steve King, and I didn't even know I did it. Because I knew that Steve King, but I never connected something I had done, been involved with 20 years before, would be the most successful writer in the history of mankind. <laughs> uh, Stephen King still doesn't pay me for that. <laughs> uh, but speaking of Stephen King, I'll, I'll, I'll pause. Ask questions, please. And I'll just keep rambling otherwise. Um, so I'm at, uh, I started DC Comics, and we'll get back to that in a little bit. And I move over at one point when DC sort of shrinks uh, and, and has this um, implosion that some of you may have heard about uh, back in 1971, I think. And I went over to Warren Magazines and edited, was an editor for... Uh, Creepy Eerie and Vampirella. Now, I had been an uh, assistant editor to Joe Kubert and Joe Orlando at DC, so I had already had training, and that's where my reputation was, not as a writer at that particular point. So I go over to Warren, and eight months later, I, I figure Warren's not the place I want to be, and Marvel offered a position there to, do, to be the editor of their black and white monster magazines and horror magazines. So I moved over. What I didn't know in the moving over 
was that Stephen King, who was a pretty broke teacher in Maine, uh, saw that I had been saw that I was the editor at Warren, and he was looking for money. Uh, not that Warren paid well enough, but he was looking for something, and he sent scripts, uh, hope it, figuring that because I had published stuff in the fanzines, uh, he would I would be more will, more than willing to um, uh, publish his stuff here. I would have had I not moved over to Marvel, but it hadn't been announced yet. So Stephen King, not knowing that I had left, assumed I just didn't bother to get back to him. We settled that later. Um, <laughs> and he took those original stories that he sent to me at Warren, wrote them as his first prose stories for sale to the men's magazines that he was uh, selling to at that particular time. So I maintain, and I know I'm correct because it's me, that if I had been still at Warren, I would be, I would have published Stephen King's comics, and today, Stephen King would be an out-of-work comic book writer, instead of the most successful writer in the history of man. He owes me money for that. <laughs> anyway, so I, uh, I'm, I'm doing fanzines, as I mentioned. It does all connect somehow, if I remember to let it connect. Um, I'm doing fanzines, and... Uh, doing uh, uh, the stories, the suspense one. Now, at this particular time, there's maybe three editors in the entire business, unlike today where there's 700, uh, that that would be interested in maybe seeing anything like this. Now, these are cheap fanzines. I sold them, as I say, for a quarter, which included postage. They were printed on Ditto, which is this purple master-type thing. Uh, could only make about 125 copies. Maybe you could eat out one or two more after that. Uh, so it wasn't anything big, but I sent them to the different editors. I sent them and I sent the superhero stuff. And Joe Orlando, who was at DC, he used to be at uh, EC Comics, but he was, he was an editor at DC, um, was one of the people I kept sending it to because he was the editor of House of Mystery and House of Secrets. Uh, at DC, and I was writing those type of stories for the fanzines. And he called and said, would you like to submit some material to DC? We like your fanzines. That's sort of like somebody today going online and finding an obscure website that nobody has ever heard of and going, I want to use that person. Uh, <laughs> so it was that sort of weird thing. Now, s synchronistically, I think it's okay, right? Um, I mentioned that I had seen, I was a fan and a reader of Blackhawk. I love the Blackhawk comics. Um, Blackhawks, if you don't know them, they were sort of soldiers of fortune. They started in World War II, and there was one character from, there were seven Blackhawks, and they each came from different countries. And it was a really revolutionary idea at the time because, you know, there were all these different type of characters involved and they were all from other places. It wasn't like uh, the standard comic at the time. And it was really good. And then during the Korean War and then uh, going into the um, uh, mid to late 1950s, they were facing all these incredible uh, machines that the communists were able to create. I mean, the communists were so brilliant. They created the best weapons ever. And he, they would have this thing called the war wheel that was several stories high that would turn and churn and, and kill everything in the way. And the Blackhawks did what every good character, especially Luke Skywalker, could do. They tripped it. That's all. The commies are able to come up with the greatest weapons of all time, and the Blackhawks tripped it. So anyway, I love that book because uh, I could trip a 90-story wool wheel, too. Um, unfortunately, that was published by a company called Quality Comics, which really was a quality uh, group. That's where uh, Will Eisner did the spirit and a lot of other things, too. Um, quality was going out of business, and DC bought it all. And DC at that particular time was sort of weird. Uh, not the DC of today at all, not the DC for the last 40 years. But with DC's first issue of Blackhawk, they introduced aliens into the book. I don't know why. 
It started to sell badly. It started to sell really badly. So they decided to make them bad superheroes. Now, I'm not saying they're bad superheroes. They are, but I'm not saying that. The characters in the book said that they were bad superheroes. They called themselves the Junk Heap Heroes. Isn't that really cool? You're, you're the Junk Heap Heroes. Um, there was one character to explain, I forget his actual name, but it was like his, his ability was to hear things. And he had a purple costume with ears on it, drawings of ears. So that explains why he could hear. <laughs> that was the best of the new black holes. Right. <laughs> I think he was the listener. Excuse me? I think he was the listener. You got it. Thank that. you, Bob. He was the one. <laughs> yeah, he was the listener. Okay. Yeah, of course. That's a great superpower. <laughs> nothing now. Let's forget it. Who cares? Uh, gee, that's a good conversation. Has nothing to do with anything I'm interested in, but I don't mind listening to it. Anyway, I was so incensed. Now, I'm a kid. I don't know anything. I don't know what the format is. I don't know anything. But I had submitted a letter to Julie Schwartz uh, telling her how much I loved uh, Adam Strange, uh, which was a great comic, uh, Mystery in Space, and he was the main character in it. And as a prize for getting my letter published, I was sent a script, a script for that particular issue, written by Gardner Fox, and that taught me what the format is. Right. So, on my own, without knowing what I was doing, I wrote a Black Hawk story to bring them back to being the great characters they used to be. Uh, and I sent it in, and as you know, as you can tell. They didn't get back to me. Um, they didn't even open it. I never heard anything. A year later, Dick Giordano, who was a, a great editor from Charlton Comics, came over to D.C., and he inherited the desk of the editor who had been the editor of Blackhawk, and Dick was going to be the new editor of Blackhawk. And he, the first day he gets to work, he opens the desk, and he sees inside a manila envelope that's sealed, has never been opened. And he opens it and sees it's the Blackhawk script that I wrote a year before. And he calls me and says, do you want me to still read this? And I said, absolutely. Now, you got to wonder, you just got to wonder what the original editor was thinking. I got an unsolicited manuscript, which back then was probably incredibly rare because there were so few uh, people doing things uh, or had the crazy ego to want to do this. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to bother reading it, but I'm going to throw it unopened into my desk and keep it there. It's like, I'm not going to read it, so why didn't you throw it out? Why didn't you just toss it? Uh, uh, why didn't, you know, there's so many questions you could ask about this, but he didn't bother even looking at it. Dick did. He bought it at the same exact time that Joe Orlando called me on the uh, on submitting material to House of Mystery. Hence, uh, both of them are my first perk sale. And I thought it was just great. Yes? Uh, do you think that maybe he was just trying to you know, hold on to it for later and you know, he just lost track of it? I don't know. No, it was, from what Dick said, it was the only thing in his desk. <laughs> um, so, yeah. It could explain the fact that the person who edited this horrible comic that the Black Hawks had become you can't, you know, who can under, who could fathom the criminal mind? I don't know. <laughs> anyway, uh, so that's how I got into comics. Um, and I was doing a lot of um, mystery stories. I did a whole bunch of romance stories, which was really weird. Uh, most of mine were comedy romance stories because I was just a kid, what did I know? Um, I became, I, I, be, I left comics for a while, though I continued to write for um, one of the horror magazines uh, that was a competitor to uh, the Warren magazines, it was Skywalt, and um, uh, I became a teacher, an art teacher, uh, for one year and then fled back into comics. At that time, DC was expanding their size of the books, and Joe Kubert, who was a brilliant artist, if you know his work, he's one of the best ever in the history of uh, comics, 
he needed an assistant editor because he was busy drawing and couldn't come in to edit every day. So I would be his assistant. And um, from there, as I said, Warren. And while I was at Warren, Roy Thomas at Marvel called me and said, would I like to come over to Marvel? At that time, he also gave me, offered me Tomb of Dracula to write, which was uh, their version of, Drac of Dracula. And it was a book I wasn't interested in. Um, uh, but it was the only, I wanted Doctor Strange. They said the only book available was this that I wanted. I sort of figured if I didn't take it, I would never, uh, they wouldn't call me again. So I took it and discovered it was like the most fun project I had ever written. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's where, that's the series in which I created Blade, uh, the Vampire Slayer, uh, who some of you know from the Wesley Snipes movies or the TV show or something like that. Some questions? Is this, are you at all interested in this? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Um, Can I get a question? Excuse did me. Me, uh, I have a question. Did yes. you ever meet Wesley Snipes at all? Or uh, yes, I met Wesley on the set of Blade. And he was, uh, it was really interesting um, because uh, first it was a half a mile from where I lived. It was in a warehouse in Woodland Hills, California. Uh, they, they were doing that. It was a press day. So there were a lot of press there. Uh, you know, early on in the filming, in fact, that what they what they were filming was the bloodbath scene that opens the movie, um, and all the actors would have to before they were on stage and have to walk through the shower of kerosene blood, uh, and um, gets very sticky because that got a little sticky. Anyway, so I'm 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 going in there on that day, and I meet the director and I meet some people and they ask me if I want to meet Wesley Snipes and. I walk over, and uh, he's very professional. Not very friendly, but very professional. And then the director said, Moff created Blade, and it was all those, the reporters are after me type of thing was gone, and it was really, and he started to talk like a real person, it was great. He, put, <laughs> he called over the uh, um, unit photographer, because you have to have union, uh, only union uh, photographers can take photos on a stand, on a uh, set. Uh, nobody else. I couldn't take it. None of us could. Uh, so he called up, made sure uh, he took the photos. If you go on my website, markwolfman.com, you'll see it because I, I put it up there. Um, and he was really nice. I, I liked him, and I thought he did a great job with the, with the uh, movie. Uh, I loved the first movie. Uh, second one's a good vampire thing. I don't think it's a great Blade story, but it's a really good vampire story. And the third one's just sort of fun. You know, a little silly, but fun. Uh, any other questions? What was your uh, first meeting with Julia Schwartz like? Oh, gosh. Uh, at DC, my favorite... Uh, the, uh, the, the question was, what was my first meeting with Julia Schwartz like? Julia is, is a well-known editor, was a well-known editor. Um, he single-handedly probably is responsible for comics continuing to exist from the 60s to the 70s to the 80s before Marvel took over. Uh, he, create, he created with his writers uh, the Silver Age. Uh, superheroes were dead. He decided to bring the Flash back. And rather than just bring back the old Flash from the 1940s, they revamped him completely. New characters, new concepts, new origins. Julie comes out of Julie came was a fan, by the way, just like anyone here, just like me. Uh, Julie was a science fiction fan in the 30s, and he published some science fiction fanzines, uh, along with some other people who got into comics later on as well. Julie was the also then became the agent for people like Ray Bradbury and Alfred Bester, who's a brewing writer nobody knows, and a whole bunch of other people. Julie then became an editor at DC. So his background is science fiction, and the new Flash's background is very science fiction-y, new Green Lantern, Hawkman. They, he, they all use Julie's interest in that. Julie could, however, be very intimidating. Um, and he could scare you. He could really scare you until you answered him back until you spoke back to him, and then he'd relax, and he wanted to make sure that you knew what you were doing. Uh, so I found them both scary and really good at what he did. Uh, an example, 
only because it's come up again recently because of DC's uh, the Superman 80th birthday. Um, in one of the uh, hardcover books, it reprints uh, one of my stories, which is uh, called What If Superman Doesn't Exist? And I wrote that with, with Julie as an editor. But I went in for my regular monthly plot session with Julie, which I would do every month, I guess. Um, that's what a monthly meeting is. Um, and I, we were, he loved to work out the stories with you. He didn't want you to do it on your own because he wanted to really get involved with it. I'd work it out all on my own then pretend I hadn't uh, because I wanted to at least talk well and, and give him the ideas. Anyway, we spent a whole bunch of time working on the next issue of Superman. And it took a couple of hours. And uh, it wor finally worked out and it was really good and no problem with it. Uh, I'm starting to leave the office and you see the pictures of like giant bolts come at you and suddenly I had a brand new idea. I wasn't thinking of it. I had my assignment. I, did, uh, I didn't need any other ideas. We were very happy. I suddenly got this idea and marched back into Julie and said, I don't want to do the story we just spent the last couple of hours plotting. Here's the story I want to do. And Julie 100% accepted it. Most editors wouldn't because he had already a lot of the time for that and went on. That's why I love working with Julie. The story, without going into a lot of detail, was a tribute to Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, the creating of, creators of Superman. The concept was very short form was uh, aliens make everyone forget the heroic concept, the principle, the heroic principle. There are no heroes on Earth anymore. There are no superheroes on Earth. Superman doesn't exist. That's their power. That's the alien's power. Uh, and everyone just knows there's, there's this evil out there. And what happens is two kids from Cleveland start to figure out what could stop these aliens, what could do it. But the concept of heroes doesn't exist on, this, on the Earth at this particular time. But they create it. They slowly figure out what needs to be done to stop these people. And they create Superman, and the J Joe character is the Jerry character is coming up with the ideas, and the Joe character is writing it. And you pull back, and there's a big picture of Superman. That's what he designed. And once the visual uh, concept of Superman returns, so did the whole, so did the hero principle that destroyed the alien thing. It read better than I can explain. <laughs> um, hey, Mark. Yes. So uh, let me just finish. So Julie was great to work with, but he was very, very intimidating. Uh, speaking of the that large Action Comics 80th anniversary cover, um, I understand that uh, that the new Siegel and Schuster story was uh, a pile of art that you found when you were younger. Yeah. Okay. So let's go back to the let's go back to me being a fan. Mm -hmm. um, DC at that time. Was, uh, gave tours on, on Thursdays. Uh, tour of the office, nobody else was doing that, but they did, and somebody from the production department would give you the tour. I went to school like six blocks away from D.C., so at the end of school, I, if I was capable, I ran to, uh, ran over to D.C. to catch the, uh, the tour. Um, at that particular time, in this particular one, uh, I'm there, and the president, or the pup, no, sorry, the production manager of the company was wheeling a post office cart. You know those giant carts that you see at the post office filled with boxes and stuff like that? They're, I don't know, six feet long, five feet deep, whatever. Um, it was filled with written off 1940s artwork, never published artwork. Uh, stuff that DC just got rid of way back then, but for some reason stored. And all these, all thousands of pages of art was on its way to the incinerators. Now we're talking about the 60s. Uh, back then, the artists were not interested in their artwork back, most of them. Nobody cared. They were, this is slightly before fandom gets any, you know, is known at all. And um, I've spoken to lots of artists 
and the most brilliant artists, they just didn't want them filling up the room, their, their offices. They, they had no room to store the stuff. They couldn't sell it because there was no place to sell it. Then fandom came in, and we slowly started trading and teaching them, we teaching the professionals, that this stuff had value. It had, you should be, you should love the material you did, but you don't make a lot of money. You could sell the pages. You could do something with it. And over a period of a couple of years, they suddenly realized this. So this goes back beforehand, but we, so we're offered, take any pages you want before it goes to the incinerator, and we dove into the thing like Uncle Scrooge into the money vault and started swimming around the artwork and all that and grabbing everything we possibly could. Now, we're young teenagers. I was maybe 16, something like that, 15, and I got so much artwork from there that I had to take a cab home. <laughs> I lived in Queens, not Manhattan. It was an expensive thing, but... I had to do this because I had so much art. Stupidly, I gave most of it away to friends. <laughs> Kill them all for taking it. Anyway, um, so we take the artwork. Uh, we go down to the bay, we go down to the lobby, and we start trading amongst each other. And I just and I realized that I had almost an entire Superman story, an unpublished Superman story. Turns out from 1946. And I saw trading even better deals so I can get the entire story. So since the 1960s, I've had this never published Superman story and <coughs> never did anything with it. Um, Paul Levitz, who had been president of DC and, is put, and put together the new book, asked me, because he knew I had it, would I mind? I said, if, I'm, if I was ever going to let other people see this story, this would be the project to do it in. Action Comics 1000, the 80th, issue, the 80th year of Superman. I'm not positive I'll be here for the 100th, so, you know. Uh, so we published this thing, and yeah, it's a totally unpublished story. It's still unpublished in comic books. It's now only in a hardcover. And uh, it's a story written by Joe, uh, Jerry Siegel, and drawn by the Joe Schuster studio in 1946. Yeah. Any more questions? Yes? Uh, how did you become involved with uh, writing for Spider-Man? Had you shown any previous interest at all? Well, I was, uh, well, first I was doing Dracula, uh, and I was the editor-in-chief of the company. I was. Uh, I had come over. I, I moved up from the Monster Magazines to the Black and White Comics, and then became the uh, editor in chief of that. I wouldn't have assigned myself Spider Man, and I didn't, <laughs> um, uh, because Spider Man intimidated me. Uh, Stan Lee created a writing style that we had never seen before in comics with Spider Man, and his attitude and the jokes and everything else within it. Uh, I didn't think that I could do it. Um, but a couple of years passed, I'm no longer the editor-in-chief. I just wanted to go back to writing, editor. Being editor-in-chief became too much business. You're determining salaries, you're determining all sorts of things that have nothing to do with what I enjoyed. So um, Archie Goodwin is the editor, and he offers me, I wanted Fantastic Four when that was made available, and he says, I'll give you Fantastic Four only if you take Spider-Man. <laughs> I'm scared stiff. I reread, I, I started about 180-something, I forget what issue, and I reread all 180-something issues of Spider-Man and really got into it. And the big test was, could I actually dialogue Spider-Man to make it sound like he belonged and do that type of soap opera stories that Stan was so good at. And I found it was the most fun job I think I've, I had ever had. Writing Spidey fit absolutely into the into my writing style, but I would not have known that. On the other hand, the Fantastic Four, which I think I did okay stuff on, um, was really impossible. That is such a hard book to write. And uh, so the one I wanted, I wasn't quite as good at. I think I did a few decent ones, but I wasn't as happy with. The one I didn't want, I love. And, you know, it just... That just goes to show you, you don't know. Um, yes? What was so especially challenging about the Fantastic Four? 
Fantastic Four was my favorite Marvel comic when I was growing up. It was endless imagination. I don't know how Stan and Jack did it, but uh, every issue introduced something brand new. Uh, you'd have Galactus, and then the next month you'd have Silver Surfer, then the next month you'd have Black Panther, then the next month you'd have the Inhumans. Every issue was introducing these incredible concepts we had never seen before in comics. And I just didn't know if I could come up with that many brilliant concepts. Of course, nobody could if they weren't working with Jack Kirby who could come up with anything. I mean, the guy was a genius. He was utterly a genius. But it was a combination with Stan, Stan's type of dialogue and Stan's, Stan's really intense personal material because he, he got into characters' heads like nobody else at that time ever did. And Jack's just utter brilliance in coming up with the most whacked out ideas and making them work. A guy, a silver guy on a surfboard in space? <laughs> you know, utterly ridiculous, and it's the one of Marvel's best characters. Jack just could take those things and turn them into perfection. So I didn't think I could do that. I, I love my Fantastic Four issue 200, uh, but I don't think any of the others were on that level uh, as far as that goes. Um, so I'm at Marvel, uh, I'm editor-in-chief at Marvel, finally go back to just writing, uh, create a book, Man Called Nova, based on a character that appeared in my Super Adventures fanzine uh, called Nova. Uh, and that's another Stan Lee story. So I'm, I'm starting Nova, and... I'm really liking the book. Nova was aimed for the youngest Marvel readers. I was writing Tomb of Dracula, which was aimed at the oldest reader, and I wanted to do something again for the younger kids because I thought we were losing some of them. And um, I'm going, the only problem with Nova is the name sounds feminine because of the, the it just does. <laughs> so I go into Stan, and I said, I said, this sounds like, Nova should be a female, but it's a, it's a male, you know, high school student and stuff. And Stan just looked and said, call it the man called Nova. The man called Nova. That's how simple it was. And that's how, you know, that's the type of thing. You can go into Stan and he'll have the answers immediately. Uh, it's, again, just like in Fantastic Four, it sounds whacked out, but nobody questioned that Nova sounded feminine from that point on. If it was a female character, it would have been fine, but it wasn't in that, in that particular thing. So I'm there, and I decide I'm going to leave Marvel and go to DC uh, for political reasons that have nothing to do with anything here. <laughs> so I go to DC, and I say, here's the only thing I do not want, because I had been writing Marvel 2-in-1, which was The Thing and another character. I said, I hate team-up books like that because it forces you to always come up with some weird character uh, and combine characters that don't fit together or something like that. So I said, I do not want any team-up books. I don't know if there was a hearing problem at the time. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what was going on, but I was assigned... World's Finest, which was a Superman team-up book, and Brave and Bold, which was a, Sonic, which was a Batman team-up book. So I had to get rid of those as fast as I possibly can. I got rid of one and I got Green Lantern, which was, um, no, Superman, which was, uh, my, was and remains my favorite character. And I needed a second character. I needed a second book. Now, there's a difference between a team-up book and a team book. Team book is the same characters month after month, and uh, you know. And what I wanted to do was create a team book, but I wanted them to be a family. I didn't want them to be like the Justice League, which is just heroes getting together, and I didn't want it to be like the Avengers, which is just heroes getting together. I wanted it more like the Fantastic Four. They were all friends and family even beforehand, <coughs> and. And so I proposed. So I worked on some ideas, and I came up with characters, and I presented the Teen Titans, the new Teen Titans, to the publisher because I wanted to do that. That was going to be a family. I created the created the Raven character, Starfire, um, uh, Cyborg, uh, the Titans Tower, all of that sort of stuff. And I and I showed the material to the publisher, and uh, she asked, 
why do you want to do the Titans? The last run was so bad. <laughs> and it was. It was truly awful. Um, and, I, and we just looked and said, we'll do it better. <laughs> now, you could not get away with that today. You'd have to present 400 pages of proof what you were going to do and outline everything and all that based on the fact that they liked what I had done on uh, Spider-Man and Tomb of Dracula. They just said, okay. And we did it. And that was the introduction of uh, Raven and in costume there. There she is. And um, uh, all, the, all the Teen Titans characters who have morphed into this. Um, which is a hilarious show. I'm sorry. I know that fans sometimes don't like it. I think it's absolutely hilarious. So that's... So we started the Teen Titans and at that particular point books weren't selling all that well at DC. Marvels were selling much, much better. Uh, George Perez signed on as the artist. We redesigned the characters. I had worked out all the backgrounds and stuff and then George and I sat down and redesigned everything to make it work between us. It's still the basic concepts that I come up with, but I'm a big believer of working with your artist on comics, not not saying I'm the writer, you're, all you do is draw, not when you're working with someone as smart as George. So the two of us played with the characters, made it even stronger, got them better, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we worked up the first issue. I, I had a full plot. I write very tight plots, but George knew that he could make changes. Uh, and we thought the book would last six issues. Because at that particular time, all DC Comics were lasting just about six issues, uh, not longer than that. And we sold a million, I mean, just a ton of copies of the first issue of the book, and less of the second, which you would expect because they print fewer copies, then less on the third, then less on the fourth, and we're getting nervous because that's, the, that's not a good sign. Less on the fifth, and then the sixth issue was higher than the first. <laughs> the word of mouth had gotten out, and back then when it was newsstand, you were selling the stuff on the newsstand out of comic book shops, uh, you wouldn't hear the sales uh, for six to nine months. So we finally were getting the sales of the first batch of issues, and even though we thought it was selling badly, worse each issue, it was actually climbing, and it never stopped. Yes, Bob? Um, so the first one was kind of embedded in that DC Comics Presents, right? Yeah, that was a, the, uh, the, the very first appearance of the Titans conceptually is DC, uh, DC Comics Presents 26. There was a 12-page, 10-page, 16-page, I don't remember, story in it. Jeanette had seen our first issue. Uh, Jeanette Kahn was our publisher. Had seen the first issue. And she said she liked it so much. What she wanted to do was get people excited by it. And she put, uh, we, they had us do the short story, a uh, free one, that would be in the back of DC Comics 26. You get an extra story free. There would be no extra charge. So the first one I wrote was Titans 1. Then I wrote the prequel to it. And then everything continued. The book kept going up in sales, and it was uh, a massive hit, which I was really thrilled by. Did that work, though? I mean, did, did that issue of DC Comics Presents at the time like show any you know, I never, I never even thought to ask. I never thought to ask, because unless you bought it, uh, unless you were buying DC Presents, you wouldn't have known uh, that it was even there. So uh, I have no idea. There was a question? Something? Yes. Yeah, do you remember a time in your life when you thought, aha, this is the career path I want to take, or did it just open up to you unexpectedly? If I had any idea what career path I should have taken, I'd be a zillionaire. <laughs> no, no, not, I had no idea. I just, I just did what I enjoyed, and there was unfortunately no deliberate thoughts involved. But then I don't think much anyway. So, anyway, so I'm uh, now at DC. I'm working on uh, Titans. Uh, let me finish this. Titans, um, Superman, Green Lantern. Something else, I think. Uh, I was writing four to five books a month. Plus, they had me start editing as well because they wanted me to work with uh, younger writers, helping them along the way. Uh, at some point, I'm on Green Lantern, I'm writing a letter column, uh, uh, and the letter that came in was from a fan who said, DC continuity makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> um, 
And he goes on, he elaborates on it, and my answer was, yeah, one of these days we should do something about that. Now, I wrote that letter column in the morning, and I'm in the office, and we're all about to head to Pennsylvania for a uh, convention. Now, I am always early. I am never a deadline problem because of that. I'm very early on everything. Uh, well, most. Um, not these days, though. Uh, back then. So uh, I get to uh, Grand Central Station in New York, uh, Penn Station in New York, and are waiting for everyone else to show. They miss one train. They miss enough. And meanwhile, I'm, th I'm sitting on the floor at Penn Station trying to come up, you know, just thinking. And for some reason, that stupid letter kept haunting me. And slowly, I'm trying to figure out what can we do about DC continuity? What can we do about this? What can we do about that? And by the time they finally do come, six or eight months later, um, <laughs> I outlined to them Crisis on Infinite Earths wasn't called that back then. Just, here's the idea that I had while waiting for you guys, and, excuse me, and um, it, was a, it was the rough concept for the whole crisis book. Uh, you know, not the details, the, the main parts of it. And everyone, was, everyone really liked it, and we kept talking about it during the whole con, and that Monday, I went back to DC and pitched it, and they accepted that. And that, be, uh, that became Crisis on Infinite Earths. Um, uh, George Perez, by the way, is the person who suggested the name. Uh, DC was always doing the Justice League, Crisis on Earth 1, Crisis on Earth 2. I never even considered doing that. And George said, it should be a Crisis on Infinite Earths because we're getting rid of all the infinite Earths. And that's a crisis. And I went, boo. <laughs> so uh, we did that. And uh, George wasn't signed on at first. He didn't want. He didn't actually want to do it, uh, uh, because he wanted his, He wanted to get onto uh, Wonder Woman. But as I started to talk to him about what I was planning, month after month after month, because I had plenty of lead time to do this on. Uh, finally, George said, "Okay, I want to draw it." I said, "I knew you would." <laughs> it just took a while. There is nobody at the company who could do it better. And. Uh, so we we did the Crisis on Infinite Earths. The hard parts of that were getting were the death list. If you know the book, you know that Supergirl dies, and Supergirl is about to have a movie. And the reason for Supergirl dying was very simply we wanted to restart Superman. It was vital that Superman be the top-selling book, the, t the best book up there at the time. And it was incredibly important for that to happen. And that meant getting rid of all the other Kryptonians. Uh, undoubtedly, at some point in the future, I knew that Supergirl would come back because we could start over. We just don't have to make the same mistakes. I knew what the ending would be and such. So we presented a death list. And despite the fact that she was going to have a movie, uh, DC approved it and then made other suggestions like Flash and a few others. So I, I said up front I would never have any of the characters created before I was born killed. So all the Golden Age live, I just don't say what happens to them. Uh, Superman of Earth 2 goes into um, uh, sort of heaven. Uh, it's a place. He doesn't die. Uh, and, but they let us do Supergirl, and the beauty of it is, and this can never happen again, I, I, at least I don't believe so. This is before the internet, this is before diamond catalogs, it's before any information in comics ever came out. Nobody knew what we were doing. And we knew it from issue one, what issue she was gonna die in, and we did not release any information. There was not one iota of publicity uh, to tell that, because my feeling is sometimes you have, to, you have to be able to surprise the readers. Otherwise, it's oh, when is she going to die? It's is it this page or five pages from now? You don't want that. You just don't want that. So the fact that we were able to do this without any anyone knowing what we were planning totally freaked out everybody. And we knew that if we killed Supergirl in issue seven. Uh, Nobody would expect again 
that we would kill off another character, major character in issue eight, and that was the Flash. And that's why that was set up. Everything was, I had plenty of time to work it all out, and I had notes all over the place, and kept going back and kept going back until it was as close to perfect as I could make it in terms of the plotting, at least I hope so. Uh, the fact that it survived all this time is a pretty good sign. Question? Uh, you have to talk louder. I've always wondered about Crisis, if there was any pushback because it changed everything so much. Like Roy Thomas spent so much time with Earth 2 and stuff like that. And, and then Earth 2 was gone after. Earth 2 was gone, but his heroes weren't. Oddly enough, uh, though there was tremendous pushback from the old fans who wanted things exactly the way it was when they were kids, uh, Roy was probably the person who, uh, who offered and did the most. Uh, positively, he he was 100% um, helping out in every possible way. He may not have liked it, but none of his characters were actually affected, unless he asked me to. So, uh, but there were a lot of other uh, people up there who really didn't like the concept of their childhood going away. But it really isn't. The books still exist. We're constantly evolving stuff. All of his childhood is still there. This is now somebody else's new childhood. And I think it's important for people to know these are stories that are going to keep evolving and the characters have to be, have to fit when they're being published. Otherwise they're going to be old, otherwise they're going to, people are going to stop selling, oh, this old thing, I've seen this plot 400 times, I've seen this character do, you know. You don't want that, you want people to be excited. So, um, if you look at Crisis, they, there were very few crossovers in the beginning because all the people were very angry at what I was doing, and they were guaranteed that it wouldn't sell. And of course, it became the biggest seller DC ever had, and then suddenly everyone asked to do crossovers. Um, but Roy never did. Roy was involved from day one, and there were a whole bunch of really good... The most creative people up there were with it. The second tier weren't. So uh, uh, we got most of what we wanted done. Yes? The creation of Tim Drake, what was the story behind that? Tim Drake, uh, I like that character. Um, this was an interesting one because I had been, George and I had taken uh, Dick Grayson, who was 12, something like that, 13 maybe, and wearing those stupid shorts and, um, uh, you know, made bad puns and all of this stuff while fighting and turned him into an adult in, in the pages of Titans. We weren't interested in working with, you know, dinky uh, little characters like that. They just didn't fun. They didn't resonate and they weren't what I wanted to tell the story and they certainly weren't what George wanted to do either. Um, so we aged it. We kept, uh, we, by the time those stories existed, I'd say he was 19 to 20. Um, anyway, the Batman editor said he wanted Robin back. And um, he not only wanted Robin back, he wanted Robin to be young again. Now, fortunately, the Titans was DC's best-selling book, and I said, no, 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 no. Uh, here's what I suggest. And I wasn't sure they'd take it, uh, but why don't I keep Dick Grayson? Why don't we have Dick in the Titans comic has been slowly moving away from Batman month after month after month after month. He was very much an adult now wanting to move out of the house, but sort of trapped. And why don't we keep Dick Grayson? You create a new Batman, you create a new Robin, you're going to get an awful lot of publicity. Nobody's ever done that before. And you could really bring attention to the, uh, to the uh, Batman books. Uh, the editor loved the idea and um, went with it. So that was um, Jason Todd, the first set of Jason Todd stories. For some reason, they didn't like Jason. I don't know what it was. And they killed him off, you know, in that stupid thing with the... Uh, you, you call in and you decide if if Jason Todd lives or dies. So the, uh, the readers decided they didn't like Jason. They would, have, they would have not liked anybody. The idea of being able to kill off a character, wow, you know. <laughs> so they're killing him off, and the editor called me and said, do you have any ideas for a new Robin? 
somebody's out to get me. <laughs> okay, do you have an idea for a new Robin? And I said, yeah, I want, I would do a character who wants to be Robin, who has no interest in Batman, who is not an orphan, whose parents are killed, he has a family, and step by step, and I worked up a, a little document and they decided to go with that and try to make him a really intelligent kid and um, build off of that. I, I'm a character writer and my preference is strong characters and I think readers remember that. They don't remember the fight scenes. I'm sorry, maybe one fight scene out of their entire collection you know, was special, but they, what they remember are the character bits and they remember character stories and they, if they're involved with character they will stay with you and I, do, I, like, I like knowing who my people are before I write them. So um, that's, that's essentially Tim Drake. Uh, I did not call him Tim. Uh, that, was, uh, that was a change because I forget what I did call him, but uh, they wanted to uh, honor Tim Burton. Uh, and that's why his first name was Tim. Uh, I forget, it's a perfectly fine name. I just, that wasn't the name I had originally come up with. Uh, and then we'll do a drawing. Now always remember to geek out. We now return you to your regularly scheduled program.